Well, once again, it is my great joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you. As most of you know, we have been going verse by verse through Paul's epistle to Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And beginning next week, Lord willing, we will resume that study in chapter 13, which is the love chapter, as it's commonly called. But this morning, I would like to once again address the issue of the love of God that I began last week. You will recall I gave you a little outline. We're going to examine the unlimited extent of God's love, the limited effects of God's love, and the marvel of God's saving love. But I am burdened this morning to say a little bit more about the first point, the unlimited extent of God's love, and then we will move to the second and third portions of that outline. I want to begin with the story of Jonah. Jonah and the whales, one of my favorite stories when I was a kid. I can still see the flannel graph. I know most of you don't know what flannel graphs are. How many of you know what a flannel graph? Oh, good. I, I thought I just made a huge blunder. But I can still see him in the, in the belly of the great fish and then see him getting spewed out onto the beach. You know, I was fascinated with that. And, and little did I understand that the real theme of that story was not necessarily to pr prove the futility of trying to run from God, but rather... It's a story, a marvelous testimony of the love of God and the mercy of God that is offered to everyone, even the most vile and cruel people on the planet, the Ninevites. Nineveh, which, by the way, is modern-day Mosul in Iraq, was founded by Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah. Read about that in Genesis 10. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire during the 8th century B.C., the days of Jonah the prophet. And it was a massive city with a circumference of about 60 miles. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3, Jonah said that it would take three days to walk around it. It was evil beyond imagination. It was a center for the idolatrous worship of Ishtar or Astarte, as she was sometimes called. She was the fertility goddess, the wife or the consort of Baal, presumably. As the historical nemesis of Israel and Judah, it was utterly despised because of its idolatry, its immorality, and its barbaric cruelty. The Ninevites and the Assyrians had really perfected the art of human torture. They would impale their enemies on long poles. They would skin them alive. They would cut off their limbs and allow them to die. They would behead their enemies and pile up massive heaps of heads. And no doubt Jonah, because of where he was from, had some of his family who had been treated in such ways. 
their cruel atrocities can only be described as demonic. And it should therefore be no surprise to any of us that Jonah did not want to obey God and go preach repentance to these heathen people. But you must understand, Jonah didn't want to go, not so much out of fear of his own life, but he had another reason, the primary reason, a reason that is at the very heart of this historical account and certainly at the heart of my message to you this morning. In Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, Jonah states the reason for his unwillingness and why he chose instead to run in another direction. He said, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You see, Joseph wanted God to judge them, not save them. That's the point. But reluctantly, he finally went and he warned them. In fact, we read in chapter 3 and verse 4 of Jonah, it says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Spirit of God brought overwhelming conviction to those wicked people. Just as Jonah was afraid he would do. And according to chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, we read this. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let men, man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Dear friends, this is probably an historical account of the greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the world, one that spread through the entirety of the Assyrian Empire. I ask you, can there be a more vivid example of the extent of God's love? I think not. This was the whole point of what God did. He wanted to demonstrate to Jonah and to the world the magnitude of his loving kindness. I might add that Jesus contrasted the repentance of the Ninevites with the hard-hearted unrepentance of the Pharisees. You can read about that in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. Moreover, Jonah's life and ministry was a living illustration of Israel, as we see in Scripture. I mean, think about it. Like Jonah, Israel was commissioned by God to be his witness nation. 
But like Jonah, they rebelled against God and chose to go off on their own and do their own thing, go their own way. And like Jonah, God miraculously protected Israel, preserving her for a time yet future when, according to Revelation 7, 1 through 8, the first fruits of a new redeemed Israel will once again be the witness nation they refused to be in the Old Testament. So there's much symbolism in that whole story. And though... And through all of this, we, we can see the love of God be ex, being extended to all people, but especially those he has chosen in eternity past. And, and what is fascinating, however, is that this great revival among the Assyrians only lasted one generation, basically. A century after Jonah preached repentance to them, they came to God, they spurned the love of God, and once again went and did their evil deeds yet again. Now, having looked at the unlimited extent of God's love, I want us to move secondly and notice the limited effects of God's love. You see, we must understand that while God's love is universal in extent, it is limited in effect to some, for some. While God is, according to Psalm 86.5, good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon him, as we see demonstrated in the story of Nineveh, his love nevertheless has its limits. His love will not save every person to whom he has extended an offer of divine mercy because not everybody is going to believe. You will recall last week in the parable of the king who invited his guests or invited guests to his son's wedding in Matthew 22. While salvation in Christ is freely and indiscriminately offered to all most will be unwilling to come. His love will not save every person who has even enjoyed the benefits of his common grace that restrains the metastasizing corruption of sin and thus prevents the human race from absolutely destroying itself. Repeatedly in Scripture we see that the love God bestows upon fallen humanity will be withdrawn in the face of persistent rebellion, persistent sin. And this is what happened to the Assyrians. Even after experiencing the love of God and his merciful hand of saving grace within one generation, Nineveh returned to being the bloodthirsty, cruel, violent, idolatrous society that it once was. But it's important to note that during that time of blessing, they grew in military might and political power to become the largest and most powerful empire in the world. In fact, the borders of Assyria reached all the way down to Egypt. The Ninevites thought that they were invincible. Sound familiar? Americans? Their city walls in Nineveh reached 100 feet high. 
They had a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And naturally being controlled by, by Satan, they resumed their hatred of God's covenant people, Israel. So God raised up another prophet to warn them about their final doom, about judgment. And that prophet's name was Nahum. You will remember him in the Minor Prophets. And then if you read Nahum, you will read the judgment that he pronounced. Nahum warned Assyria at the pinnacle of her power, even after they had recovered from Sennacherib's defeat in 701 B.C., at Jerusalem. And this is a story that I want to tell you so that you can grasp the reality that God is both loving and holy. In our culture, we want to believe that he's just loving and that holiness has nothing to do with God, but he is loving and holy. Therefore, all sin must be punished. The Ninevites spurned the love of God, so now they experienced the wrath of God. It reminds me, by the way, of Psalm 5, beginning in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Once again, this is the God of love who also hates sin You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Psalm 11 and verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So let me tell you what happened to the Assyrians after they spurned the love of God. Now, mind you, they experienced great pleasure and great power in sin. And there's pleasure in sin for how long? For a season. And that's what they enjoyed. And then God judged them. And here we will see a vivid example of the limited effects of God's love when it is spurned. I'll never forget studying the Lachish reliefs in the British Museum during my doctoral studies. A relief, by the way, is an intricate stone carving uh, that narrates a story. And the story of Lachish is one that could best be described as a horror story. You see in that relief unspeakable barbaric cruelty. By the way, you can go online and see this in great detail. This relief was discovered between 1845 and 1847 in the southwest palace of Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh of ancient Israel or of ancient Assyria. It's interesting that it was discovered 2,700 years after it was carved. It's carved into what's called gypsum, and it was carved sometime between 700 and 681 B.C. It spans 39 feet, and it's about 8 feet tall. Now, by the time the Assyrians came in to Judah, they had, or by the time they got to Lachish, they had already 
destroyed 46 fortified cities of Judah. And now they came to Lachish, which was the second largest city, and Jerusalem would be the final prize. And in this carving, it depicts the military siege and capture of the Judean city of Lachish, which, by the way, is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And I've been there to see the ruins at Lachish. When you go to Israel, you can see that. Now, this whole story happened during the reign of Hezekiah in Judah. And it happened as a result of his unwillingness to pay tribute to the Assyrians. The relief could really be likened to an ancient documentary or an ancient uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation. This is the way they did it back then. And it would exalt the military exploits of the king and, and boast of his brutalities. From left to right, you can see a chronology of what happened in the siege, beginning with the Assyrians building a base camp for the vast military horde of the Assyrian Empire. You can see walls that are being built around the city, and they would do this in siege warfare. They would begin by building walls around the city to demoralize the people within the city and say to them, there is no way you're ever going to get out. A mud brick siege ramp is seen being built, which would allow the massive siege engines with their battering rams to move inexorably closer to the city gates and the walls. And close behind them, you can see archers, and you can see slingers, and you can see spearmen, all of them readied for battle. And then you can look up on the walls of Lachish, and you can see those that are defending the city, shooting arrows and throwing rocks and large stones and fire torches. You can even see chariot wheels coming off the walls. They were throwing everything they could at the invading Assyrians. And gradually, as you look across the relief, you can see the defenders collapsing under the weight of the enemy. In the relief, you can see people being beheaded, others being brutally impaled on long poles, People being skinned alive. People can be seen trying to flee through the city gate. But of course it was hopeless. And with his chariot in the foreground and, 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 and uh, soldiers, bodyguards standing around him, you can see Sennacherib seated at the far end of the relief, seated on a splendid seat on a little low mound and in front of his royal pavilion. And above Sennacherib's head, there is an inscription written in Akkadian. And it says, Sennacherib, king of the universe, king of Assyria, sits on a throne and the spoils of Lachish are paraded, paraded in front of him. Pride comes before a fall. Well, according to Second Chronicles 32 and other passages in the Old Testament, we know that Jerusalem was the next target, the final prize. 
And if you read the story, you will, like in 2 Kings, for example, you, you will read how Hezekiah cried out to the Lord. And the Lord was merciful and he answered Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings 19 and verse 28, here's what the Lord said. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way, way which you came. By the way, it was customary for them to put a ring in a person's nose or in their lip and fasten a little cord to them so that they could lead people around so they couldn't escape. God's saying, I'm going to do that to you, Sennacherib. Verse 32 and following, we read, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. By the way, the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ. The same angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, as we read in Exodus 3 and verse 2. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And I love this footnote that the Spirit of God gives us. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword. By the way, they were his sons. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Folks, I have to pause here. Our God reigns. Amen? Our God reigns. A God of love, but also a God of holiness and a God of justice. Yahweh proved his superiority over the gods of the pagans. And what's interesting, about three years after Nahum's warning, Nineveh fell to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians and the Medes got together, and they conquered Nineveh and the Assyrians in 612 B.C. As a footnote, it's interesting to understand that Jerusalem's Supernatural deliverance from Sennacherib was really a down payment on the literal supernatural deliverance and final restoration of Israel. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns once again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to establish his messianic kingdom. That's why he said in verse 34, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, I must pause. I can't help but think of the parallel between Assyria and the United States of America. Despite the manifold mercies of God that he has lavished upon this nation, we have become 
of one of the most idolatrous, immoral, and cruel nations in the history of the world. The sexual perversions, for example, of homosexuality that defy God's moral and physical order are now not only affirmed, but they are encouraged. We now live in a society that that panders to males and females who think they are part of the other sex and who persecute people that don't join them in their delusion. We now live in a nation that butchers about 2,000 babies every day. And it's legal. Worse yet, we sell their body parts. Incomprehensible. Dear friends, if God does not judge America, he owes Assyria an apology. Isn't it interesting? It's illegal in the United States for us to torture our enemies, and rightfully so, but it's legal to suck the brains out of an unwanted child and then defend it on the basis of a woman's right to choose. Dear friends, God has a right to choose as well. And he has chosen, and he will judge. And it gives me no joy to say that on the basis of Scripture and on the integrity of the holiness of the Lord our God, judgment is coming, not upon just on America, but upon this world, because our God reigns. Once again, dear friends, God is a God of love, but he is also holy. And he will not allow his love to be spurned indefinitely. Once he is fed up with it, he will pour out his wrath. And God's judgment is coming even as he has promised. You know, we sing God bless America. We need to sing God save America. James 4 verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able, catch this, to save and destroy. Please understand, God's compassionate love is, is, is poured out on the undeserving sinner. And, and he does this to lead people to a, a place of, of repentance. But sadly, most will not repent and wholeheartedly embrace God's love. And you want to ask yourself the question, what about me? Have I embraced that love that he has offered to me? to save me from the horrors of my sin. Paul speaks of this in Romans 2, beginning in verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Dear friends, please hear the word of the Lord. His pleading with sinners and his promises to forgive and take us to glory is what proves his love. However, his promise of an eternal hell 
proves his hatred of those who spurn his love. Now, I know people will say, well, I believe that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. You want to be careful with that. That's really a false dichotomy. I mean, it's the sinner, not the sin, that is condemned and sentenced to the solitary confinement of an eternal hell, right? The Apostle Paul stated this unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. The Apostle Paul stated this so clearly. That God hates both the sin and the sinner who refuses to repent. Now you must understand. God's hatred here is not some kind of malevolent spiteful hatred, but rather it's a, a righteous indignation. It is a holy abhorrence of all that is evil. And so God's wrath must coexist with his love because, once again, he is holy. How can God love what is pure and holy and true unless he also hates what is impure, unholy, false, and wrong? I think of David and how he shared God's hatred for sin and those that bask in it. He said in Psalm 139, 21, Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, mind you, his hatred was not motivated out of spite, but out of a zeal for the holiness and the glory of God. Yes, God is love, as we've studied in 1 John 4 and verse 8 and verse 16. But because he hates both sin and the sinner who loves sin, we also read in Hebrews 10 verse 31 that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May I remind you, in John 3.36, Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, folks, there's the love of God, right? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he went on to add, But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, God abides on him. There's the wrath of God, the holiness of God. The writer of Hebrews said, How... Shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2, 3. And in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26, he says, if, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Well, let's move finally to that third point. Let's close with a reflection upon the marvel of God's saving love. We know that while God is love, he hates sin and hates those that bask in it. And when his love is spurned long enough, he will judge. And one of the inscrutable mysteries of God's love can be seen in the fact that he has a unique, a special love for certain undeserving sinners. 
that he set his love upon in eternity past. Those that he chose before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us. Now, I'm not going to take time to defend the doctrine of election. It's stated with utmost clarity all through Scripture, and the only person that could possibly reject it would be someone that, that just is willfully ignorant or just has a rabid commitment to self-determination. But friends, the marvel of God's saving love is, in contrast to his universal love means that God's love is offered freely and indiscriminately to sinners whom he will ultimately condemn. It's an amazing thought. And why? Well, because of their refusal to repent and wholeheartedly embrace the salvation that is offered so freely through faith in Christ. While he has no pleasure in the destruction and punishment of the wicked, Ezekiel 18, 32, and though, quote, the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind is there, Titus 3 and verse 4, nevertheless, we know that he has a singular, a unique love for his elect that will save them to the uttermost. And we see this particular love for God's elect being represented in the Old Testament in his love for Israel. And because Gentiles have been grafted into the covenantal root of Abrahamic blessing, as we read about in Romans 11, the eternal love that's bestowed upon Israel uh, extends to all of the elect of God. For he chose for himself a people According to Revelation 7, 9, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And we read in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6, what God says about his choice of Israel. He said, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And once again, this extends to all of the redeemed. He says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Once again, here God is speaking to all his elect, all of the spiritual children of Israel. As Paul stated in Galatians 3, 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are true sons of Abraham. Now what's amazing and what is so profoundly humbling is that as we read here, God did not choose us because of our own merit. He chose us in spite of who we really are. None of us are worthy of his love. Instead, he chose us out of his love, his infinite love, a sovereign act of his will. In order to illustrate this just a little bit, I would ask you to turn to John chapter 13 for just a minute. Let me give you the context of John 13 after presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah King and then cleansing and taking possession of the temple. 
to determine if the nation would truly receive him as their Messiah. He hears from his people words of rejection. They refuse to see who he really was. The text says they were not believing in him, though he had performed so many signs before them. So as we read in these passages in the Gospels, he hardened their hearts so that they could not see an act of judgment that was a part of his sovereign plan. And though he warned them, according to John twelve thirty six, to walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you, they refused. And so in that same verse we read, so he departed and hid, him, and hid himself from them, which is a, a solemn illustration of the judicial warning that he had just pronounced. And even as the visible presence of Jehovah the, the, the dazzling light of his Shekinah departed from the temple precincts in the Old Testament. Once again, the presence of the glory of God in the person of the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is now going to leave the temple and he is going to hide himself from them. But now in stark contrast, he does something very fascinating here. He he reveals himself even more to his disciples. In, in this most intimate scene where he celebrates the last divinely sanctioned Passover meal with them on the night before his crucifixion. And in, if we had time, we could see in the whole scene there in the upper room, he will use the elements of the wine and the bread and, and, the symbol of, and the symbolism of that meal to illustrate the transition of the old covenant Passover, which pointed to him as the Lamb of God, to the new covenant Lord's Supper, which commemorates his death as well as anticipates his return. But what's interesting in the context here is what's going on in the mind of the disciples. As we study the gospel accounts, we see that although Jesus continued to speak to them about his impending death, the disciples just could not come to grips with it. They, they were just certain that he was going to establish the kingdom. Rome was out. And instead, they were preoccupied with who's going to be first in the kingdom. Who's going to be greatest? So there was a, an undercurrent of rivalry building up among the 12. And although Jesus had instructed them about humility in, in Matthew 18, we read in, in, in Matthew 20 about James and John and his mother. Remember, uh, they, they're asking Jesus to place them in a position of prominence in the kingdom. One on the right, one on the left. You remember that whole story? And, and sadly, this this recurring theme of ambitious pride just keeps cropping up. And, and in the upper room, it's going to be exposed in the most dramatic way when Jesus washes their feet. And even more profoundly, when he goes to the cross of Calvary the next day. A little bit more about the context before we look at the passage for just a moment. Jesus is also fully aware that Judas had already made arrangements for his betrayal. Nevertheless, Jesus showed love even towards his enemy by washing his feet. And also, 
we know that a man's passions typically manifest themselves, his ruling passions typically manifest themselves most vividly in the face of death. We have to ask, what would be uppermost in your mind if you knew you were about to go to the cross the next day? We can see the ruling passion of the heart of Jesus in this scene. Although Jesus knew of the inconceivable tortures that awaited him, his focus was on those whom the Father had given him. Herein, dear friends, is an an example of saving love. In chapter 13 of verse 1, we read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, remember... An amazing picture of redemption was partially painted at at the Passover in Egypt. Remember when the innocent blood was splashed upon the doorposts of all who trusted in the deliverance that would come through the hand of Yahweh. But now that masterpiece was about to be finished when innocent blood would be spilt upon a cross and applied to all who trust in Christ as Savior. As I reflect upon this, and I hope you can join me in your imagination, I cannot imagine the anguish that Jesus was experiencing, knowing, as the text says, that his hour had come to depart. To be sure, he longed to return once again to the Father to enjoy the majesty that that was rightfully his, But the anticipation of such a glorious reunion did not mitigate his pain. In fact, we read in chapter 12, verse 27, what he said, My soul has become troubled. Literally, in the original language, it carries the idea of of him just trembling with acute and mental and, and spiritual anguish as he contemplated drinking the bitter cup of the Father's wrath on behalf of all sinners. And we know that this was a chronic condition that plagued him. And yet, despite the horrors that awaited him, his focus was not on himself, but upon those whom the Father had given him in eternity past. As he stated in chapter 10 and verse 29, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Oh, dear friends, the marvel of God's saving love. It's incomprehensible. The love that he has for those who had been given him, chosen by the Father to be the bride of the Son. Those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Those for whom he died. In John 15, 19, Jesus says, the, the world loves its own, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now again, some people will say, but doesn't God loving his own, as it says here, contradict John three sixteen? for God so loved the world? No, not at all. 
God does love the world. He loves fallen humanity, but only in a temporal, not an eternal saving way. You say, well, how so? Well, as we studied last week, some, he bestows common grace on undeserving sinners who will never come to salvation. To some degree, God protects and delivers and sustains um, the lives of even the most vile people, giving them an opportunity to repent. Acts fourteen seventeen, we read that he does good and gives them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. Matthew five forty five, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And once again, the very fact that he would proclaim the gospel of his saving grace, even to those who would refuse it, is a demonstration of his love. God is, quote, compassionate and gracious, Psalm 103 and verse 8. Second Peter 3, 9 says he is, quote, slow to anger. He is patient, the text goes on to say, patient in bringing judgment, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Think about it. Before he unleashed the waters of judgment due to unimaginable wickedness in the days of Noah, We know that he withheld his judgment for 120 years, giving the people ample opportunity to hear the warnings and to repent and obey. Today's evil is no different. Yet because God is loving and long-suffering, he continues to wait. that, That God loves sinners in the world who will never believe is demonstrated by the mercy he grants them by withholding instant death and judgment when they sin. Remember again what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, that God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The adverb especially indicates that all men enjoy some measure of the same salvation as believers. Therefore, he is the Savior of unbelievers in a temporal sense, as I've just described, but believers in an eternal sense. So again, John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Greek phrase means he loved them to the uttermost. This, of course, is a contrast to the temporal love for the unsaved demonstrated by his common grace. Now, you might say God's love for the world is unlimited in extent, but limited in degree. It's not not a saving love. Whereas God's love for his own is limited in extent, but unlimited in degree. He has always loved his own. But he is about to show us the full extent of his love, which will first be displayed in this scene in the self-abasing washing of the disciples' feet. And then it will be displayed yet again in his farewell address. And then we can see it even more in his high priestly prayer in the garden in John 17, all of which form a, a beautiful prelude to his most comprehensive act of love, his sacrificial death on the cross. Oh, dear Christian, if the marvel of God's saving love does not move you, does not humble you to the core, there is, there is something 
horribly wrong with your faith, with your understanding of who God is. So may I challenge you to examine your heart even today. How have you responded to the love of God? With indifference, like the guests who were invited to the wedding feast? Or perhaps with contempt, like some of the other guests? If that is you, know this, that his love one day will be turned to wrath. And the one who could have been your savior will be your judge. And he will sentence you to eternal condemnation and the solitary confinement of an eternal hell. Dear Christian, let me ask you, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself? If you're like me, it's pretty pitiful, right? It's not at all what you wish it could be, what you want it to be. And that's why we celebrate God's grace so much. You know, when you understand that you can really sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. But may I remind you that the two great enemies of our love for God and our love for others are, number one, the love of the world, and number two, the love of self. Both will cause us to forfeit blessing and eternal reward. Let me ask you another question. Do you experience subjectively the love of God that the Spirit of God has shed abroad in your heart? Do you experience that love? Do you enjoy that love? Does it animate you to worship and to praise and to serve and to love in return? If not, then you're walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. You have left your first love, as the saints in Ephesus did, recorded in Revelation 2 and verse 4. You might say that you can become all sizzle and no steak, and that's a lot of what the church is today. All sizzle and no steak. Christian in name only, but an atheist in conduct. So many Christians live as if God doesn't even exist. They come and sing the hymns and they open their Bible and they quote the verses and they listen to the sermon and they go off and live their life as if God doesn't even exist. Who needs God if you have plenty of money, right? If you've got cable, if you've got high-speed internet and a cell phone. Who needs God? You see, that's the great deception of the world. If that is you, dear friend, then yours is a cold, dead, lonely orthodoxy. And you're missing out on the magnificent realities of being in intimate fellowship with the lover of your soul. That's why in Revelation 2, God said to the Ephesians who had had all their ducks in a row in terms of their church, their orthodoxy. They wouldn't tolerate bad doctrine, false teachers. But he said, you've left your first love. Therefore, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. And this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. And I close with that prayer that 
is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. He says this, For this reason I, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we find ourselves speechless before you when we contemplate that special love that you have lavished upon us even before you created the world. We cannot begin to comprehend these things. These are inscrutable mysteries that are beyond us. But what we can say is thank you for your great love and help us by the power of your spirit to reciprocate that love through our sacrifice, that we would live lives that honor you and worship you and long for your return. And finally, Lord, for that person that may be within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of what it is to love you and experience your love, I pray that you will overwhelm them with the reality of their rebellion, of their indifference, that they might be convicted and that they might run to you and cry out for the mercy and the grace that you extend to all who call upon you. I ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus, and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.